Welcome to Piecing It All Together. I'm Randy Woodley. I'm Bo Sanders. And today we have a special treat. We're doing a tribute to Richard Twist. Ah, my friend Richard. Yes. Today is the seventh anniversary of his passing, and so we wanted to celebrate him and uh, tell some stories about him to, to honor his yeah. legacy. Yeah, and this is how, you know, I think it's a tragedy. Some people are maybe get upset when you talk about people who have passed on, especially, you know, if you've been close to that person. But, uh, and, and I've kept Richard in my heart, actually, in my even in my dreams for the last seven years. I, I still have dreams where he's just as real and not dead. And I, I'm thinking to myself in my dream, he's not dead, he's alive. And I wake up and I'm so disappointed, right? Mm. But, um, and, and so... But when we stop talking about people, um, that's that's when they're really dead, right? And and I think Richard's legacy should live on. He was a great man. Yeah. Well, two things that uh, listeners will want to know is from time to time, we're going to splice in some audio that Richard gave me uh, back in 2009, so 10 years ago. Uh, he gave me this. It was a Friday morning chapel up in uh, Trinity Western in British Columbia at a Nate's gathering up there that I got to go to. And I was so intrigued um, by his presentation that he did me a favor and he tracked down the audio and got it for me. And uh, the university had it stored in their archive and uh, from the chapel there. And uh, they sent it to me off that hard drive. And I've, I've always treasured this. I've wanted to do something with the audio in the past so that people could hear Richard's voice and uh, sort of get a sense of what he was all about. And so uh, today we're going to splice in some of that audio in the midst of our uh, sharing memories and storytelling. And so I hope that you enjoy hearing Richard's voice. Yeah, and that is really a miracle because um, Richard really, he was able to do that kind of a detail for you. He really wasn't known for his detail work. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, I think maybe his administrative help tracked okay. it down for me, but he still came through for me, and I've always appreciated it. Yeah, Richard uh, was excelled at big vision. So. Yeah, yeah. No, he was, uh, as you'll hear, he is a, a wonderful presenter and uh, just help people to overcome any hesitations that they had. They would let their guard down and then they'd come in and hear something they had never heard before, consider something from a different perspective. And he was just an amazing presenter that way. Really? I think actually one of the better speakers I've actually heard uh -huh. bar none um, because he had this incredible gift. He was able to piece a lot of uh, integrate a lot of things, piece it all together as we say around here, um, <laughs> present it in a way that would, uh, because he was really had a great sense of humor, uh, that would make you laugh while he was sticking the knife in your ribs and turning it, right? Yeah. Because you'd be laughing about it. So, And that's a rare gift. This other little thing called dancing our prayers as a response to some of our friends' concerns and accusations about us being syncretists. Uh, trying to blend Indian religion and biblical faith and, and coming up with a sort of hybridized mongrel belief system that's neither one nor the other. And uh, from our sort of evangelical friends, so as Brian was talking to us last night about sort of the evolution of thought in the 50s and 
modernity and postmodernism and those kinds. And we have, within the native community, we've inherited all those philosophical, theological problems. And so when the missionaries came to the reservation, we became fundamentalist Southern Baptists. Or we became liberal Lutherans. Or we became uh, Orthodox um, Catholics. Or we became... So whatever the missionaries were when they came, they became that. And so in the Southwest, you have a whole movement of Reformed people. Good Dutch Reformed people turning Navajos into Dutch Reformed Christians. And uh, looking and dressing and all of that. So we became, we inherited all of that. And so now we're at this point of uh, uh, looking at what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus and, um, and still be human. And so I want to talk about a little bit about that. Uh, is if Jesus were created in, in the likeness and image of God, what does that mean in terms of being human? I had actually lost this audio for a couple years, and I was very upset by it, especially after Richard, uh, after his death. And I could not believe that I lost the audio that he gave me. And then when I got a new job, I got a new computer, and I was moving my old hard drive onto my new hard drive. And because I had been a part of a big podcast in the past, I had hundreds of audio files, and I was going through them systematically to sort of see what I had and what I needed and if that would be useful for uh, any of my students because I was teaching at a seminary. And when I said, well, what's this Friday morning thing? Because it didn't have any other details on it. And I clicked it. And when I heard his voice, I freaked out. I was so happy to have found uh, this audio. And I think I actually called you and told you, I found it. I, I didn't think I had it anymore. And I have it. So I was very, very excited. And I can't wait to share it with people. Yeah, I, I kind of have a, a story about like that, too. I uh found one day I found uh, some of the recordings that I've done of him singing his uh, uh, Jenny Craig song <laughs> and his, his, his other more serious song that uh, prayer song that uh, that he used to sing and Whoa. and so I recorded those at one of our um, events at one point uh, of course with his permission and yeah. and uh, and so now I have those to to listen to Randy that's amazing the other thing I wanted to tell people is that uh, if you are planning to be a part of our upcoming book discussion, we're actually reading Richard's book um, starting this Tuesday night. So Randy and I have a book discussion group on the second Tuesday of every month. And for uh, February, March, and April, we are going to be looking at Richard's book, Rescuing the Gospel from the Cowboys. So this upcoming week, chapters one and two are our conversation. Great. Um, that You know, that was originally uh, entitled Rescuing Theology from the Cowboys, but the publisher thought that it would sell less books if they used the word theology. <laughs> yeah. Theology is a much smaller market than the yeah. gospel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so tell us about, uh, I'm curious, tell us about the first time you met Richard. I first heard about Richard Twist back in the old days, not the covered wagon days, but almost, when we were just finding out uh, what the Internet was all about. My wife and I were seeing commercials that say WWW on all these commercials, and we were like, what is this WWW stuff? And, and so then we we found out about the internet. So this was 
I guess that would have been about uh, maybe the mid nineties, okay. uh, late nineties, or yeah, kind of maybe like ninety six, I think seven, maybe. And uh, and then then I found out um, that there were these things. Um, and oh, what did they call them? They weren't chat rooms, but they were uh, places you could go and leave messages for like a message board. A message board. There we go. Yeah, there were these message boards about different areas. And and I come to find one that was sort of about uh, like Native and Christian or something like that. And yeah. and uh, a fellow by the name of John Grover, Grovner, a um, friend of ours, an uh, elder who lives in the Coval, uh, at the Coval Reservation in um, Washington State, um, uh, first contacted me through that message board. And we began to talk, and then he said, do you know about Richard Twist? And I said, no. And so he said, well, here's this guy's number. He's doing a lot of the same stuff that you're doing, and you know. And so um, so I called him up. And, uh, yeah, so so uh, he must have been real busy because uh, he didn't want to talk very long. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, so I ended up, uh, the next time I actually met him in person was in, uh, I think it was, uh, the, uh, what was the World Christian mm-hmm. uh, Indigenous okay. People Celebration in um, Rapid City, South Dakota. And that's where right. I finally met uh, Richard face-to-face and we became friends. And, and then he had this great idea that came out of that that he would start these mini nation one voice meetings. Mm. And that was really his brainchild and really um, one of his uh, geniuses. He was really good at strategizing of uh, how to sort of create a movement. And so Richard really created this movement within that um, for, I would say, disenfranchised natives who were told they couldn't express their own faith through their culture um, for uh, people who um, didn't know much about Native people, and uh, and and so then we would have speakers. Like uh, uh, there was a bunch of us, uh, sort of handful of folks that sort of traveled together that all became sort of speakers at those events. And um, I was at the first one in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, and that was in uh, I think 1990. Nine, maybe two thousand, oh, wow. something like that. Wow. Um, maybe, maybe a little ninety-eight, ninety-nine, something like that. Uh, but one of the the ingenious things that he did was because nobody's ever heard of these native guys, right? Yeah. So nobody wants to come see a bunch of unheard of native guys. What are they about? You know. So he would uh, uh, leverage allies, uh, like at first John Dawson, uh, author of Healing America's Wounds. Now he's been. Uh, one of the leaders or the main leader for a number of years in the um, uh, youth with a mission. Um, later, uh, Brian McLaren would lend his name and others. So people would say, Oh, well, I, yeah, I want to hear Brian McLaren. And then it would just be Brian doing one talk. And then all these native people, you know, <laughs> talking. So, so that was Richard's idea, like how to get our name out there. Right. And then some couple of us had books. And so, you know, he would like, uh, I had a book, uh, Living in Color, Embracing God's Passion for Ethnic Diversity. Um, he had a book, um, uh, his book. He had one called One Church, Many Tribes. One Church, Many Tribes. There we go. And I think we were the only two people who had books out at that time who were our Native folk. 
uh, speakers. And so, uh, you know, he would uh, hold my book up and talk about it and then say, you know, Randy's book comes with a, a pack of 64 Crayolas. If you're interested right now, we can, you know, and uh, things like that. Uh, but I want to start with this little quote from uh, Paul Hebert, the late Dr. Paul Hebert, who uh, became a friend of us and in the early days of Nate's was very encouraging, uh, though he was never able to physically join us. Uh, but he encouraged us in the first two or three uh, Nate symposiums and wrote extensively. But he wrote uh, in one of his books about this notion of self-theologizing. And really, Nate's is just a grandiose experiment, if you will, about us doing theology. And so he writes, uh, so I wrote, that what we want to see is in the indigenous church arise within our First Nations communities, not sort of anglicized uh, expressions for Indian people, uh, but we want to see a truly indigenous church. And so in, in historical missions, we've talked about uh, this model of a three-legged stool. So the missionary goes to the Shtatliam nation, some people get saved, and when they become self-supporting, self-propagating, and self-sustaining, then they get the label an indigenous church. And the missionary can say, we've succeeded, we've planted an indigenous church. But other authors talk about how when when that indigenous three-legged model comes from the West, it's loaded with colonial assumptions about government. Self-governance. It's loaded with assumptions about economy, self-supporting. It's loaded with notions about discipleship. So those notions don't always fit in a matrilineal or matriarchal society. They don't always fit in a consensus, egalitarian form of traditional government. They don't. But when the missionary says we got a pastor, he's the head of the new corporation. We're going to call it, you know, Stadlium First Baptist. Uh, we're going to elect the board, get some committees. Okay, now they're self-governing, and they tithe 10%, so now they're self-sustaining. So even that model is a colonial model, yet it's been adopted as a missions, three-legged stool, successful model. So Hebert is critiquing that model, and he's saying the fourth and most important of those legs of the stool is self-theologizing. And this is what he writes. But little was said about the fourth self, self-theologizing. For the most part, national, and I'm going to put native or First Nations, for the most part, national or First Nations leaders were not encouraged to study the scriptures for themselves and to develop their own theologies. Deviation from the missionaries' theology was often branded as heresy. To young, nationalistically minded native leaders, this was theological colonialism. And whether we like it or not, young native theologians around the world are reading scripture and interpreting it for their own cultures. Now that's what we're doing. But oftentimes when read by a dominant culture person, it's like, oh no, they're going to compromise the integrity of the Bible because they're going to read it in their own context. Not the normal one, ours. And they're going to somehow dilute the true meaning of scripture and the meaning of Paul and the other authors of these texts because they don't have the training and background, whether it's in the original languages or historical context or the academy. And so they can't help but produce something at least sophomoric, you know, juvenile, not mature, not really trustworthy, reliable. And so even as Brian was talking about last night, you know, when the dominant culture church does theology, it's just called theology. 
But when we do theology, it's called indigenous theology or feminist theology or African theology or Asian theology as compared to, in a quantitative way, theology of the West. So those days are waning, sort of the dominance, the hegemony of Western thought that has to come in and control and dominate. Those days are waning. And so Nates is a part of the global conversation of learning to become human as followers of Jesus and to allow the scriptures to reflect back to us who we are in God, created in the likeness and image of God and welcome to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so that's where we want to hang out. So, Father in heaven, thank you for this time. Jesus, thank you for your presence and Holy Spirit uh, for the life you bring to us in all things. Oh, amen. So we, we kind of hung together. We were doing a little bit different things. He came from a more uh, churched, um, kind of moving to traditional kind mm-hmm. of ideas. Uh, and how does that fit in? And it took a long time. Uh, you know, to kind of figure out how that fits in. And, and, and we were working with traditional people um, all this time and trying to say there's no dichotomy here. There's no problem. Yeah. Um, so, for example, at the first uh, Many Nations, One Voice uh, in Kansas City, I remember there was about 20 people in the hotel room before we went out and did this thing. And And Richard says, one day we'll all be able to sit around in a circle like this and smoke a pipe together. <laughs> and people kind of looked and I said, um, I have a pipe and tobacco in my cedar box right now. If we can smoke. And he looked at me and everybody else looked like they were scared. You know? <laughs> oh my gosh. And, uh, uh, and this was again, 98, something like that. 90. And, uh, and, and Richard just said, um, we're not ready for that yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man so he he did move that he had a steady movement um to a more integrated and anti or decolonial sort of uh position as he went along and, and um one, one of the things he was great at was taking knowledge from various places and then integrating them into a contextualized understanding of of how to speak to others about this so he was great at that. Master. Wow. From those early days when you were all sort of doing independent things and you found one another, and then at some point you all sort of, uh, you came together in a unique way and went to uh, school together as mm-hmm. in a deliberate a move towards to in, indigenize theological studies. Yeah. So we each had sort of our own vision of what we were doing. Um, uh, there's a, a whole group of us and, um, and, and Richard and I both had our own, um, uh, ministry, so to speak. I had Eagle's wings, Edith and I did, and Richard and Catherine had, uh, Wachone international. And uh, we were doing a little bit different things, but, but it was similar enough to where there was probably no one else doing anything closer to what I was doing than Richard. And so we, we, our friendship, a lot of it began with this um, kind of listening to each other and learning from another, each other. So the status of recognition belongs to the conglomeration of Euro-American scholars, ministers, and lay folks who have over the centuries used their economic, their academic, their religious and political dominance 
to create the illusion that the Bible read through their experience is the Bible read correctly. And whereas us, for as indigenous people, it's, it's at most times less than that uh, and suspect oftentimes. So being human and embracing who God created me to be and the uniqueness of my own humanity is both a gift as it is for you and a hurdle as it is for you. To love my neighbor and to not love myself is an impossibility. You can't do it. So to love my neighbor requires that I love God who God made me as a Lakota. As a follower of Jesus, I have the power and grace to fully embrace my humanity. So we've been saying for years that it is possible to be fully committed to Jesus and fully Ojibwe, Lakota, Pawnee, German, Irish, French, etc. But the European peoples have a much easier time because I used to say, you know, I've never met a white person who says, what do I do about my whiteness now that I'm a Christian? Uh, you know, it's like, but native people ask that question a lot. Well, what do I do by now my native culture now that I'm a Christian? I ask that question. And uh, so why do we ask ourselves that? Uh, and most dominant culture, whether whatever it might be, don't ask themselves that question. So because of who Jesus is, I can be fully human. So as I've walked among our native people here in different parts of the world, I have to confess that at times I have to work really hard to not become a complete cynic, harshly critical of Christianity. And yet despite the lingering effects of a Eurocentric missionary enterprise that contributed, contributed to the historical cultural genocide of our people, I nonetheless believe we're in the midst of a historic paradigmatic shift from the paternalism of the past to a genuine native-led contextualization movement of the gospel story. And, and also came uh, sort of this, like, what I call, what I said at his uh, uh, going away celebration, his memorial service was, uh, we were best frenemies. So um, we were, uh, people were amazed at how we could get mad at each other and talk to each other and still love each other. Um, you know, there are a few times that lasted a little longer than probably should have, but but um, we had a lot of disagreements, um, but it was all to, to help us become uh, better at what we're doing. Um, and then part of the vision uh, was to, we were, I was actually speaking um, along with uh, Terry LeBlanc and Ray Aldred at uh, Asbury Theological Seminary. We were, my, at the time, Edith and I were full-time on the road. We were mentoring a number of people around the country and, um, uh, we were speaking there, and they said, would you all like to, you know, we've been talking. We'd like to kind of get in on what you're doing. They said, we think you've got the best missiology in the world, they actually said. And, and we want to get in on it and find out how we can empower you and help you. And so my response was, okay, well, I'm trying to start this thing, Ayla right? So you guys live in Cherokee land, all the land stolen. And uh, can you sell five acres and give it to me? Uh, so that we can do our school <laughs> or give me the money from it. And, uh, and so they, they couldn't do that. But what they did do was offer us um, uh, uh, advanced degrees in the areas that we qualified for. So, uh, and um, I turned them down the first year, as did Richard. Uh, Terry took them up the first year. Um, and then the second year, Richard and I went in together and, um, what had happened is that uh, Edith and I bought a home there um, to found Elahe, uh Village and our school and all of that sort of thing. And then when 
uh, Richard and uh, Terry and Ray and sometimes Adrian Jacobs, Ray Albert and Adrian Jacobs, um, various times uh, they would come in. Richard would come in usually about once a month and stay for from anywhere from four or five days to 10 days and uh, and just live with us there. So um, that, that's when we really got to be closer friends. And uh, he and I took a lot of our same courses together and uh, kind of just you know, a lot of late nights setting up talking and uh, discussing these things. I remember the, the week that we started, um, we felt it was all, um, am I allowed to say bullshit? I think okay, so. so uh, yeah, we thought it was all bullshit, you know, all this academic rigor and yeah. learning European constructs and yeah. all these kinds of things. And, and so um, once we were taught a couple educated words, $5 words, um, we said it was hegemonic bullshit. But, uh, <laughs> but I remember we would set up at night and laugh and say, you know, epistemology, what's that about? You know, or... Uh, uh, <laughs> And, and ubiquitous. What, what's ubiquitous? You know what? So we're at all these uh, Western words that we had to learn and categories. And and uh, I think the first couple of weeks, we actually sat down seven different times and said, seriously, should we quit? Should we just stop here or, or go on? And, uh, of course, the story is that we both went on. Terry also went on. Uh, Wendy uh, Peterson went on. Um, uh, several of us went through there and got our PhDs and uh, doctor missiologies and things like that. And, and, uh, became, um, and it became useful. It opened doors for us that probably would have never been opened. So, um, and then we created NATES, the yeah. North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies. And um, so that, that whole education venture wasn't really on our radar but um, but it was on someone. So a lot of the folks there at Asbury and others who who felt like we could have more influence if we if we did that. It wasn't easy. But and and without the cohort that we had, I don't think I would have ever gotten through it. So as Ray said, I'm finishing a, a doctorate of missiology at Asbury, <clears throat> and I'm writing a, um, a dissertation. And then what I'm writing about it is a dizzying process. So I think we should call them dissertations. So what I'm writing about is chronicling the last 20 years of ministry within the Native North American context. Uh, how we went from a strongly paternalistic model to a new emerging contextualization model. Uh, and I'm using a couple uh, authors, a guy, I forgot his name already, what's his name? Uh, Everett, uh, uh, Diffusion of Innovation, who's that guy? Rogers. Everett Rogers, right. So this idea of diffusion, how things spread, move around, and innovation, new ideas. And so the fact that we're, we can burn sage and incense as a part of our worship today is a new thing. Twenty years ago, you would rarely have ever find that in a native Christian setting because that was clearly demonic or rooted to some kind of pagan belief. Uh, whereas today, to have the people come last night and sing their traditional uh, river songs, uh, is a beautiful thing, but 20 years ago, rarely would you see that in a, quote, Christian context. So how did we go from there to here? That's the story that I'm telling in my dissertation. And who were the early um, innovators who started doing some of this stuff before anybody else did? And then how did those ideas spread? And then what are the new networks? So Nate's is a part of that collective journey 
where many of us have met and sort of coalesced and had talks and, and prayed and been together, then they coalesced into this new conversation called Nate's. But it's going to continue evolving into other things. So now there's I-emergence that's a part of the emerging conversation. Uh, and then pretty soon there will be so many other things. But for me now, I don't see this contextualization as the ultimate goal, but see our contribution as indigenous followers of Jesus. The result of a newfound freedom in Christ within the context of our indigenous identities to the building of an authentic community in a multicultural world. Until we can fully be who God created us to be, then I don't think the world will ever become what God intended for it to be. But we have to become who God intended for us to be in order to contribute to the health of what that community will look like. And so in this this paper, what I've attempted to do is provide some theology in talking about Trinitarian theology in this term, this Latin phrase, missio dei, which which simply means the mission of God. And it's understood to be Rooted in the notions of God's triune being. So you guys, yeah, you were really there for each other and encouragement uh, to complete and finish the process because you knew that it was going to open doors uh, on the other side. So the North American Institute of Indigenous Theological Studies, for those who are <coughs> familiar with NATES, uh, that's what that stands for. And so that sort of took on a life of its own. It was both an expression of your, your passions individually and uh, the ministries that you had had, and it came together in a unique way. And then it sort of took on a life of its own and lives today in, in, in several different forms. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Richard was, it was kind of Richard and Terry's, um, idea to do this uh, conference, what they call a symposium, every several years, and uh, I was invited by them to be on the board, um, as were a number of other um, Native folks who became, who were already part of the, sort of the gang, Um, and uh, yeah, and and then we tried to um, uh, find a, a home for ourselves once we graduated. The idea was to start our own program so other people wouldn't have to go through the hegemonic <laughs> bullshit that we did, right? And uh, so uh, we eventually were able to do that. First we tried um, Asbury and, uh, because they went through so many um, deans and presidents while we were there because of uh, political unrest within the Methodist Church. Um, and especially around Asbury, um, we weren't able to, they weren't able to sort of um, keep the promises that they'd made there, let's say, because of so much change. Uh, then we tried Sioux Falls Seminary, and uh, I was the only one who was able um, to move and become on the ground person. And so uh, Sioux Falls kind of got up to the starting line and then they sort of fizzled out. Um, then, um, uh, we went to George Fox, and and that's where Richard and I really, you know, began to sit down with some the late Larry Shelton, who just passed away, and uh, some others, and began to formulate an idea for a Master of Arts Intercultural Studies there. And then uh, we brought Terry in on it and um, began to construct that whole thing. And 
And now Nate's was in not just the symposium business, but the education business. Mm. Our program was the first, the Master of Arts Intercultural Studies at George Fox uh, Seminary. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, and so I was the program director of that program, and Richard taught there. And then it began to spread uh, through Terry's efforts into Canada. Because if we as Native people see ourselves in the history of European history, we're a chapter in their book. Or we see ourselves as a part of the history of Western Christianity, then then we don't see where we begin. And so ontologically, where we begin, our beginnings, I want to say that that my mother uh, is a Sichangu Lakota from the Rosebud Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. And my grand my dad is an Ogallala Lakota Sioux from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. And on my dad's side, um, uh, one of them, uh, we, the name Twist goes back to this English cat in the late 1800s who came out to be the superintendent of the Pine Ridge Reservation. Uh, so I, I go all the way back to England. Uh, and then on my mom's side, there was this uh, Scottish dude named McLean who came from Montreal, and his boy ran away, and he ended up in South Dakota. He ended up marrying a woman named Mary Waxalone, and that was my great-grandma. Mary Waxalone married a guy of French descent, Lakota guy, uh, named Richard Larvey, and so my mom came from that. Now, it was all in in the context of Lakota culture. They only spoke Lakota in the home and all of that. So I go back to Scotland and France and Ireland and... And before that, it goes back, and but I can I go all the way back to great great grandpa Adam. I mean, I go a long ways. <laughs> I, I go clear back to the beginning, and actually, I go back to my Creator, God, as do all of us. Ontologically, that's where we all begin. And that's what gives us meaning and value in this world. Is that we came into this world. As an expression of the affection of God's heart. So we've come into this world with a sense of purpose, with a sense of meaning, with a sense of value. But in this brokenness of sin and judgment and power and all those kinds of things, we often find ourselves in terms of our identity as coming from something other than I am created in the likeness and the image of the Almighty, and I'm beautifully and fearfully, wonderfully made in my mother's wombs. Richard um, was a good teacher, um, uh, but a great speaker. And um, I think he felt both were important, but uh, his his real vision, um, maybe we can talk about toward the end or something, his real vision was something called the the Salmon Nation House, or the Salmon House, he later called it, yeah. And uh, we'll talk about that. But yeah. there may be some other stuff you want to talk about. You were, you know, he and I were your uh, mentors, right? He was your second yeah. reader. I was your mentor. And um, I don't know if you want to talk about that at all. Yeah, I will. So when I came out uh, to go to the seminary in 2008, you uh, had just entered into a new partnership. And one of the first events I can remember is the Theology of the Land Conference that was held right. At both of the two campuses and just how monumental that seemed at the time and just how, um, you know, Richard was a very intense man. He was 
physically tall and, and could be imposing. And with his uh, jet black hair and the way that he carried himself, he was a very intense character. And so uh, there were times where he would uh, let it be known that he thought things should go a certain way or that something was not done the, the right way. And uh, I just always remember just his presence was so powerful in the room. Uh, I also had a chance to go to his family camp uh, through oh, yeah. ministries. And, um, and I just people came from all around to be a part of that. It was such a unique event. And for those who were familiar uh, with dancing uh, in, in native drum and sweat and uh, different aspects of, of native ceremony together. Uh, for them, it was an opportunity to do that in a sort of a different environment in a way that uh, was really in sync with, with what they were doing in their spirituality. And then for those of us for whom that was not a part of our experience, it was a chance to, for us to sort of sit on the edges and be initiated into a different way of worship and it was just a beautiful blending of cultures and uh and i understand why people uh that was so important to them and why for many people it was the highlight of their entire year is every summer coming to summer camp yeah mini with um the uh, powwow and and camp and uh richard wanted that to be sort of a place where um native people who worked uh, Christians uh, could come and feel comfortable as well. And so uh, he he uh, didn't spend uh, a lot of time on the uh, um, the, you know, Hallelujah Jesus stuff as um, as much as some of the other things in the, in the powwow itself was mm-hmm. very much just a powwow. He wanted people to feel, and, and then the sweat lodges were just, you know, sweats edith and i would lead a couple sweat and we would talk and do workshops yeah. and things and, and others as well um and um he, but he wanted a place where everybody could be comfortable um but not sort of a hallelujah hoedown if you will so. and i think one of the scariest harshest places is the church Because the church has all these notions when they say, we want you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And if Jesus is just like me, that means you got to become just like me. And for native people, it's like, uh, well, okay, you read the Bible. That's what it says. You're the pastor. You're the teacher. I love Jesus. I know I'm saved. I guess that's what I do. Because what do I know? Which is what I did. So I asked the guy, what do I do about my native culture now that I'm a Christian? He says, let's see what the Bible says. So we went to Galatians chapter 3. At the end of the chapter, it says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free nor male nor female. So he said, Richard, don't worry about being Indian anymore. Just be like us. So I said, damn straight. I didn't say that. So I'm 19 years old. I don't really know anything about the Bible. I don't know anything about being a Christian, but he's the authority. He's reading from the Bible. So the next 12 years or so, that's what I did. Cut my hair and got a suit and tie and all that kind of stuff. So for me, it's been a process of deconstructing what I was led to believe was true about what it meant to follow Jesus. I've been going through this process of dismantling a whole lot of my thinking well, what the Bible really says, and Brian helped us immensely last night, painting this big picture 
sort of the evolution of certain philosophical constructs and thought and the evolution of mission and history and evangelicalism, etc. But we're all a part of that here. We're all a part of that bigger conversation globally. What does it mean to follow Jesus and to be a person of white privilege? Is that possible? Is that an oxymoron? Is that an oxymoron? White privilege and commitment to Jesus? So, um, I don't think so. But I think we have to redefine certain meanings in our generation. We have to rescue, for us as Native people, we're rescuing theology from the control of the cowboys. <laughs> Circle those legs. Yeah. I worked for the International Bible Society for a couple of years, and, uh, you know, all big, all white missionary or translation organization. My friend Lloyd had a big poster on his wall, a picture of like uh, uh, Geronimo and Sitting Bull and and underneath it said, all my heroes were cowboy killers. (laughs) And all the white staff just just, just flip out. How can you be a Christian and put that up there? It's like I can say, well, in the same way, I go to big white evangelical and white big churches in America, they always have the American flag up front, right? You don't do that too much in Canada. So in America, you always have the American flag right up on the pulpit, and you have the Christian flag right next to it. So I said one time, you know, like those are the two biggest symbols of colonial oppression we've ever faced. Why do you have that? It's like bookending the reading, the text of the Holy Bible, and the preaching of the Word. Two symbols of oppression. It's like, those are symbols of freedom, brother. It's like, what the hell kind of freedom are you talking about? You know, cost the decimation of millions of Indian people so you could put that there. So the whole idea of symbolism and, and meanings and who gets to define what. One of my favorite memories of Richard was from 2010. Um, I was writing my master's thesis with you on the subject of contextual theology, which is really sort of an updated missiology me coming from a missionary background of the denomination that I grew up in. And we asked Richard to be the second reader. And so I write this paper. I think it's the biggest paper I'd ever written at that point. It was over a hundred pages and I sent it to you and Richard. And then, but part of the weird process of that whole thing is that you show up that morning, um, not, not really knowing sort of what your second reader is going to say. At that point, there hadn't been a lot of of interaction, and so I showed up, you know, sort of hoping the best, and I really liked what I had put forward, and I had covered all of the material and done so much research, and it was well footnoted and everything. And so we sit down, and we offer an opening prayer, and uh, and then it's time for you and Richard to give me feedback on this massive thing that I uh, had done, probably I, like I said, biggest undertaking I had ever done. And, and But I needed also to pass it because I had already gotten into my own doctoral program. And this was my last thing I needed to do so that I could <laughs> get ready to go. And Richard begins by saying, and this is not how you want uh, your the reading of your big thesis to go. He says, so I read your paper and I guess I'm just wondering uh, well, why did you write it? 
And I thought, this is a bad start. The existential question. Yeah. And so, you know, I tried to make my case for it. And then he said something I'll never forget. He said, um, the only problem is you didn't put your uh, yourself in the paper. I don't find you in, in any of this. You wrote about something. And the thing that we don't need is a white guy who is now the expert about what we do. You need to put yourself in this. You need to have skin in the game. Yeah. And so I had to drive back up to Olympia, Washington, where I lived at the point. And that was one of the longest drives of my life. <laughs> and I had to rewrite several parts of that paper in order to invest myself and my story. Because it turns out, and this is a, just a beautiful thing that I learned that day, is that it is possible to exist in the realm of ideas and to never put your feet on the ground. And that is a mortal sin, <laughs> especially when you're talking about contextual theology. You have to be rooted and grounded in the earth. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and that was a great lesson for me. But I, it was terrifying when he said, why did you write this again? <laughs> yeah, so that sounds very Richard-ish. You know, um, he also, I'm sure, had a concern for you, not just trying to protect uh, Native people. But yeah. um, he was very pastoral uh, in a lot of ways to a lot of people. So in theological discussions within the, uh, within the academic circles, the Latin phrase, Missio Dei, Mission of God, has become current in the last several years as a means of redefining what is meant by mission today. Uh, quite simply and quite profoundly, what this phrase means to assert is that mission is God's, not ours. And as Philip Potter sees it, this presents a radical departure from a Western ecclesiocentric focus to a Trinitarian focus. In light of the astonishing kingdom possibilities this represents, it's like I'm kind of amazed that I've never uh, heard the term Missio Dei until I went to Asbury or the Academy. And uh, had I been around more the Academy, perhaps it would have been a more common phrase, but uh, because I'm not an academic in the sense of I've, I've never been to college or Bible school until I turned 50, so uh, no undergrad work, so I didn't, wasn't exposed to a lot of stuff. So going to do a doctorate at this stage of my life with no background was kind of a weird experience for me. And if it wasn't for the fact that my homies were there helping me, I would have quit. Uh, I did quit several times, uh, probably eight times. Because um, it, was, it, was, it, it was so many levels, it was very painful for me uh, to gear into this sort of boxy sort of way of learning. But, but I did it. And so Missio Dei was like this revolutionary thought for me, like Trinitarian thought. You mean like as a native guy, I could find where I came from in God? Because in the church, I'm only the mission field. And I read about all the crummy things that have happened in America and how I've been victimized by bad missions theology, how I've been disallowed from being native because it didn't fit into a Eurocentric notion of what being human was and what being a Christian was. And I had to conform to all these expectations. So Missio Dei began to really open my eyes to other possibilities about being human, about being native. And to see that God did create me in His likeness and image. And if in the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, there's a picture of community. And that community is expressed through diversity. Then maybe diversity is not a new sort of social political conversation. Maybe diversity is a deeply theological conversation that goes all the way back to the beginnings 
of before the beginning began, there was God the Father and God the Son gazing upon the face of God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit and God the Son gazing upon the face of the Father. And God the Father and God the Spirit gazing on the, Maybe within the context of God's divine origins and being, we already have a picture of community expressed through diversity. He was, uh, Richard was um, known by a lot of people as Uncle Richard, right? I I know he was uncle to my children. Um, He was uncle to lots of others uh, out there. And and he took that seriously. You know, I I found out that there were times that he would call my, my kids up when, like I'd be saying, you know, they're having a hard time or anything. And he didn't say, hey, what do you mind if I call them or anything? He'd just later on, day or two, he'd call him up and talk to him and say, how you doing? Listen to him, huh. you know, like, like an uncle, a good uncle is supposed to do. So, um, and, and at his memorial service, the, this large one on Sunday, I think there was like several thousand people there. I don't know exactly how many. Yeah. But, um, you know, I asked uh, how many people um, were uh, saw him as Uncle Richard in Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens raised their hands. So um, he had this unique way of uh, making everyone feel special. And, uh, um, yeah, he was just a a very um, – you you might not get that if you just watched him on the platform, but uh, he was also a very caring person. Uh, That's incredible. You know, another thing that I – that lives on with me is uh, his work on um, we dance our prayers, dancing our prayers, Uh dancing our prayers. And uh, you know, when I first read his work on that idea of dancing your prayers, uh, I had never heard of anything like that before. Hold on. There's going to be noise for a second. You know, when I first encountered his idea of dancing our prayers, I had never seen anything like that. And it really, I mean, it, it just blew my mind that when he talked about how, you know, um, the embodied spirituality of movement and how you like the tongue we train it to twist in certain ways and in rhythms that we learn from those who have come before us. And when we perform that a certain way, we call that a prayer. And at some point that prayer actually begins to express something very real and personal for us. It's not just routine and uh, performance, but that eventually we actually express something that's very true of us. And so it both forms us, but it also allows us to express ourselves. And then when he's talked about, that's not just the tongue, but muscles and how the feet can be trained to move in ways that express a deeper truth that we inherit from our ancestors, but that actually express something very deep that's going on in us. It was one of the most, um, I will always remember thinking, I will never think about prayer the same again. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's that not that big a book, but you got a lot in there on uh, syncretism. Yeah. yeah. So, so I ended up, I ended up using 
uh, that and having uh, my theology students read it when I was a professor so that they had an opportunity to uh, engage that uh, idea the same. And I would say for a large majority of the students who read that, it opened them up in the same way to realize that spirituality is an embodied practice and that it has to involve your body and that in the same way that the tongue can communicate the same way that legs and feet can. And, uh, boy, it's just such a different paradigm. And he did, he did such a great job at presenting it because he had lived through the tension. Mm -hmm. He had held that tension in his body and worked it through. So it's a great way to break, break up that dualistic thinking, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That uh, so many people have. So when I began to sort of grapple and think through and wrestle with that, it's like, to me, that is like so hopeful for as an indigenous guy. Because within God's very being, if there's already community, radical community, and then I read the book of Revelation, and it sort of points us back to Genesis, but Revelation says there's every tribe, tongue, nation, language gathered together, worshiping as the community of the redeemed. Then it's like it started, it ends the way it began. Radical community expressed through diversity. Every dialect of every language, every spoken is being heard. So there is no such thing as a Christian language. English is not the language of the Bible. Amen? And I totally agree with Brian's deal about King James especially is not the version of a language of heaven. To me, the King James is like a a, a pristine example. That's probably the wrong word. It is the wrong word. It's an amazing example of colonialism. And how colonialism gets embedded in a language. So to think that the, the, the authorized text of scripture, the coming most accurately communicating the heart of God is contained, captured in this particular archaic version of a human language, which says the poor Russians don't get to have the King James. They don't speak English. All the Spanish people speaking of the world, poor them. They don't get the King James English. Nobody gets the King James English except English speakers. Dude, how colonial is that? How arrogant and ethnocentric. Can, can people become thinking that the sum, the, the whole, the accurate is contained in this language? That's like incredible because then we see Revelation. Every dialect of every language is being heard in worship. So God can communicate in, in whatever language. So deconstructing all of that stuff and seeing in the Missio Dei this amazing possibility. So it reorients us as a native people back to our creator, back to God. And so for me, it was like this revolutionary way of thinking. And so in the in native communities, the problem, the bottom of page 7, the problem was further complicated when our native leaders... Wanting to do the right thing and their uh, newfound faith and the advice of the mission, they bra- they embraced these Western viewpoints, failing to understand who they were from their own indigenous perspectives. And the tragic result of this Westernization was that Native people um, uh, discovering that once inside the four walls of the church, they lost their place, their voice, and their identity in the world. Once they entered the church, they had to stop being Native in order to be Christian. Even today, God finds them, but the church loses them. The many nations, one voice, in a sense, what they did was they called native people back to their their roots, right? Um, to uh, la raza, as they say in Spanish, to 
their um, the sort of their what I would say the ancestors' calling, and um, and yet uh, from his uh, um, as he got farther and farther down the road, he he really had quite a uh, searing message for uh, colonialism and the white church, um, and and he began to change. Um, I remember sort of like the biggest change that I saw, I saw sort of like, it's not like you can see one moment, but he and I were taking a class with our mentor, Mike Rinkovich, and the class was called Colonialism and Neocolonialism. And, and we were talking about the um, various things, the Philippines and, and other things. And, and, but Richard and I would always like bring stuff up in class, right? We we're kind of like the troublemakers. And, and, uh, so, um, and this, in a number of classes, but this class, it was a, a, a white woman who, young woman who said, you know, um, why do we always have to hear about the Indian stuff? <laughs> uh, and the professor looked at her and said, um, one, because they're, they're here to tell it. And two, because you need to hear it. Oh, wow. And so we sort of were given carte blanche to uh, to explore and, and oh. talk at that point. So uh, it was a um, uh, uh, sort of a turning point, I remember, in that course that that it sort of all clicked, right? It all clicked together. Um, and, and that was about 2004. Five or six, maybe 2005. A redemptive look of missions among our native people relocates the focus of missions from a westernized church-centered to a Trinitarian one. For our native communities, the recognition that mission is God's mission represents a crucial breakthrough in light of the previous five centuries. In Western missions history, our people's story begins with colonization and continues throughout church mission history as the exotic allure for European Western Christianity. If native people's story begins and is bound to Western church history and the colonial or neocolonial mission of the church, it is a blatant disregard and rejection of Missio Dei. Our story does not begin with the age of discovery. Our place in church mission histories can no longer be, fought, be defined by our relationship to European expansionism, nor can native people's identity be derived from nationalistic histories, not our own. Our story simply read as an incidental chapter in someone else's story. All two-leggeds must come to the conclusion that their place in missions history originates in the Trinitarian-centered Missio Dei. The Creator's design for our, the place of our native First Nations people was always intended to be one of co-equality, mutuality, particularity, and co-participation in the table of the Lord in Missio Dei. One that uniquely reflects the triune origins of mission and embraces the worldview orientation, cultural expressions, and diversity of indigenous or human communities. As the Nupiak Christian leader Mary Ann Warden sees it, I think that we are closest to God when we are true to our culture because that is how God made us. People tried to separate me from my Christianity. I told them I cannot be separated. I am both Christian and a Nupiak. I am an Nupiak Christian. People of our Western culture may be able to separate themselves, but I cannot. I am a Nupiak. 
So Bevers and Schroeder say it this way, I think in a very profound way, an understanding of mission rooted in the Trinity looks upon culture in the most favorable way. Through God's secret presence in history and culture, there are distributed treasures among the nations of the earth in which the seeds of the word are hidden. The Trinity is a witness to the need for a diversity of culture so that the full richness of Christ can be discovered. Seen through the lens of Trinitarian faith, Christians can discern in the fabric of God's creation, historical events, and human culture certain triune marks. What the tradition calls vestigal trinitus, that helps us understand what God is like. Thus, culture, for eyes of faith, becomes a way of deepening in a fully human and contextual way, human knowledge of and relation with the mystery that is ineffable and yet closer to us than we are to ourselves. There is so much in that one little paragraph. That is so deeply profound for us. You know, he was getting more more of a an edge, yeah. more more of a bite to his message. Um, and and I wonder, I, I just wonder, um, because because he is so funny, right? And before before we end this, we have to tell a little bit of a funny story or joke to, to in his honor here. I want to. Yeah. All right. uh, I want to repeat something that his son Ian said on Facebook today uh, to sort of take us out because because um, Richard always saw the humor in everything. It was it was great um, and and always teasing and always had the one up on you with uh, oh. with his uh, stuff. Yeah, it was fast. Yeah. So, um, uh, but and in that in some ways that made him sort of uh, like evangelicals kind of progressive evangelicals darling not not so much like he would just do what they said but but they liked having him there because he made people laugh too right yeah but he got more and more serious and um he was still able to 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 make you tickle you and turn the knife in your ribs but Mm -hmm. but there was more knife than tickle i think towards as, uh, as he was going on and he was taking it pretty seriously and um, I just wonder how um, organizations that uh, loved him in the early days would have loved him now, because uh, he was uh, he was definitely uh, continually gearing up for a fight um, against colonial faith. Right. I have had many conversations with my native friends who they, who wanting to talk. They say, "Oh, we're not into culture anymore. That that's we're into Jesus." We're not into. We don't want to argue about culture. That's that's done. We we're just into the Bible and discipleship making and Jesus. Have you ever heard that conversation? It's like, what the heck are they talking about? Aren't you speaking a language? Isn't that a cultural thing? Aren't you clothed? Isn't that a cultural thing? Don't you worship in a certain kind of way? Like prayer is just just the total learned cultural behavior. Like our brother said, you know, not with every eye closed and head bowed, which is a cultural way. It's not a biblical way to pray. It's not biblical to fold your hands. It's not biblical to bow your head as if it's, it's, it's prescriptive in that way. Pray standing. Pray with smoke. Pray with dancing. We dance our prayers. So there's all kinds of ways to pray. So you mean to say here that, that the way you pray, the way you worship, that's all just the Bible? 
No, it's crazy. It's crazy talk. It's full of culture. At every level. They just don't want to talk about indigenous cultural practices. That's what they mean. And they've settled, in my opinion now, for less than what God intended for them to experience in Christ. As having been created in his likeness and in his image. Richard continued to pick stuff up, right, along the way and integrate it. And just was becoming a really what he would say a smarty pants. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I remember, by the way, this is a great joke. Um, uh, <laughs> he, he and my kids really got along great and teased, especially my two boys. And Redbird and I and Edith and uh, Young, I think we're all up in uh, Calgary, uh, uh, Alberta, at a conference. And, and uh, uh, Redbird got him back. He, he came up to Redbird and he said, you see all these Indians around here, Redbird? He said, yeah. He said, these are all the smarty pants Indians. And Redbird said, well, then why are you here? <laughs> oh, uh, but uh yeah so so like he had this ability to take all of this stuff in and then use it you know integrate it and use it he was he was a master at that man i have so many funny stories about richard the one of the first times i met him he told me a joke that i cannot repeat on the air but um <laughs> Uh, warning me not to take myself too seriously, but he did it in such a funny way. He told me a story about a bird who had become enamored by his own reflection and mm-hmm. couldn't get enough of his uh, of seeing himself. And uh, and he told he so he tells this story and it has a very surprising punchline. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and then he never followed it up with any explanation, and everyone sort of laughed nervously. And then he just looked at me. As if to say, like, hey, don't take yourself that seriously. It was like a good, kind way to do it, but also with that little edge, you know? Shut up. There's more time than that. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, little brother. So on Friday mornings, building community in a multicultural world. What if we did missions like, let's say we're going to go to a community, go to a reserve. Let's say we get like two white guys, two native guys, and a black guy, and uh, some women, and an old guy, and an old gal, and a young gal. And we send a group of people that culturally are diverse and different and maybe even opposing and at odds. But when they go to that community, that's a very good picture of heaven. If you send all 50-year-old white guys, that's a bad picture of heaven. (laughs) Or maybe just to say, it's an incomplete picture of heaven. It's a culturally biased image of heaven. So what if um, we're going to send a group of people to Ghana? What if we took people from different cultural backgrounds, different languages, different experiences, and we sent them to Ghana... I think the Ghanaians would have a much better possibility to understand who Jesus is as he's not confined to a language or a culture or a people. What if we took a person from Bolivia and a person from Canada and a person from America and a person from Mexico, different, and we sent them to Ghana? That would be an even cooler picture. So now we're becoming community that's expressed through diversity. 
So let me um, talk just a minute about the Salmon House, which was okay. Richard's uh, sort of uh, the, the vision that he left unfulfilled. Um, his his vision was to uh, be more local. He was actually made a local elder in Portland um, oh. through the um, uh, the uh, NAYA, the Native American Youth and Family Services, where sort of the elders hung out. Um, Richard uh, was trying to not have to travel as much. Um, it was also wearing on his health, which obviously was a factor in his heart attack. Um, his He couldn't get his blood pressure down, and uh, that was a problem. Um, and uh, and so he wanted to spend more time off the road. And, and his vision was the Salmon House. Salmon Nation House was really what it was, but someone else had already claimed that name, so he kind of went with Salmon House. But uh, which was the idea was to bring uh, young um, native and non-native people here from all across the U.S. and Canada, wherever, uh, have them serve local elders and the native community in Portland and uh, be trained and mentored by P- Edith and I were set up to be mentors in the program and other local people who were, would be mentors and uh, for a year. So it's kind of a little bit like the mission year construct, if you're familiar okay, yeah. with that thing, but, yeah. but it was specifically native, specifically working to serve the native community and native elders. And so um, that was his vision. Uh, it, it never got uh, taken up again after he passed on. And it's too bad because I think he was really on to something. I hang out uh, with a group of men on Friday mornings in Portland, Oregon, uh, roughly 20 or so men. Half the men are African-American, half the men are, are white. And we, some of the guys have been meeting for about 15 years. I've been there for about three years. And we're working out community in a multicultural context. Racism is always a topic. White privilege is always a topic. Some of the guys have been together for 15 years. But I call it the no bullshit zone. Because you can't come there with any pretense. So the brother comes and he says, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with my wife. Um, uh, and uh, she's just not cooperating. So, so the guys say, well, what are you doing wrong? Well, no, she's not. Uh, we don't care about her. What are you doing wrong? Why are you not making it possible for her to be cooperative? That's whatever it is. Well, it's not. It's, it's her. Dude, shut up. What is your problem? So that, that's how it goes. So it's the no BS zone. He can't put it on. So for us, it's this whole way of building community. Now, the white-black thing, culturally, it's huge. Because the white Christian dudes, most now there's like old guys, young guys, lawyers, police officers, college students, professionals, millionaires, poor guys, uh, Pentecostals, Lutherans, Baptists, uh, Episcopals, Foursquare. So all that mix is within our group of guys, right? So, but the white guys, all the evangelical guys, they're just nice. They're nice. And they want to talk nice. And they want to disagree nice. The black guys are not white. They're loud. They yell. They're in your face. They disagree passionately. And so when we get into things, it's like, I won't do it here, but we swear a lot in our Friday morning men group. And F-bombs fly, and guys stand up, and they call each other out, and then we go out to breakfast afterwards. (laughs) 
Because the guys are genuinely committed to living a life of reconciliation. Not going to a reconciliation event. Like I stopped going to Promise Keepers events because it cost me too much in pedicures. Because every time I went, somebody wanted to wash the Indian guy's feet. <laughs> oh, brother, we're sorry that we stole your land and forgive us. And we did all these bad things and God bless you. And well, give me some, show me the money then. Come on, let's, let's talk about repentance, not just eventness. So anyway, but I'm still poor, still got no land. But I got clean feet and pink toenails, so. This has been fun uh, reminiscing and. Uh... Yeah, can we invite others to share stories with each other about Richard or uh, email us or share them with us? Um, I, again, um, when a person, uh, you know, of course, I knew him as a very uh, vulnerable and fragile human being as well. But when a person does great things and uh, is an innovator, I think we need to honor them by continuing to keep their uh, what they've done uh, alive by, by sharing those with other people. And so um, I think it would be a good thing. So here's these guys, and, and they are committed to, to walk in community in the multicultural context. So we'll be going along, and, and, the, and the guy, say it's a white guy, he'll say something, and the black guy will do, shut the blank up, dude, what are you talking about? Why are you white guys always ought to talk like that? It's like, well, brother, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know what the hell I'm talking about? Why are you always saying about this? You make these stereotypical images, and what's the problem with you? Brother, I, I was just being honest. Don't judge me for being honest. Dude, you can be honest all you want, but you're a, a, a behind of a donkey. That's what I'm talking about. Not in your being honest. And so then it goes, so then after a while, it's like the white guys go, now let's not get carried away and emotional here. Let's talk like brothers. So the black guys goes like, if you can't love us, like we are, and walk with us, like we are, there's the door, and get the hell out, and don't stop, brother. <laughs> well, brother, and we, and we go round and round like this. But for the white guys, it's like, dude, you just short circuit all my Christian circuit boards. We're not supposed to talk that way. So I tell everybody, go watch that movie Barbershop. Anybody seen the movie Barbershop? Go rent the movie Barbershop. It's kind of crude, but no, okay, I don't, re- I don't, I don't uh, endorse movies. So anyway, um, <laughs> learn my lesson on that one. <clears throat> so if you ever had an inclination to, uh, and you were thoroughly prayed up. Um, so you ready for that funny story? I am. So, it, you know, Richard um, always thought of his uh, family. He was a very, you know, committed to his family and uh, his boys. Um, you know, my wife and I were just talking today about, you know, what an incredible grandfather. He just missed the opportunity yeah. to really be the grandfather that uh, he could have been um, and would have been um, to uh, all his uh, grandchildren there now. But, um, but uh, his third son, Ian um, is, uh, uh, all of his kids reflect different parts of, of, of Richard um, well. Um, Ian, uh, I think, really 
uh, sort of got the Richard humor of the way he sees life and sees things. And so um, Ian, who I call my nephew, um, I'm not going to really share what he shared on Facebook today because that would be his uh, uh, right to share that with who he wanted, where he wanted. He shared it on Facebook today and tagged me. But one of the things in his story is he was talking about his dad um, and, and he said, I know my dad was meant to still be here, hmm. you know, and, but he thinks there might've been some deaf angels. And, and when they said, uh, you know, grab the guy with gray hair that they heard, grab the guy with great hair. <laughs> <laughs> and they might've taken him by accident. So, um, because they're helping me understand God in a way that I have never understood or experienced God before, ever. And one of the great privileges of my life is to experience that God is black. God is black. Not because I read The Shack, but because... (laughs) Because I'm experiencing God... Through the experience, the eyes, the soul, the humanity of my African-American brothers. And they speak into my life. They challenge me. The white church, I don't think, has ever experienced God being native. We're just the mission field, the exotic allure. We've learned to experience God as white. We came into a white church and a white God and a white Bible. But you've not yet had the privilege to know God as native. Which isn't altogether your fault. Nate's is about us as native people becoming who God intended for us to be. Freeing ourselves from the control of a colonial Christianity. The control of theology to develop our own theologies, to then become who God intended for us to be. Oh, we miss him. I know that you miss him um, so much. The two of you have formed such a strong uh, friendship and partnership. And so we just wanted to do something um, to honor him and to let people hear his voice. We're excited to be going through his book. And uh, we would love if people share with us their memories um, we're hoping to do something where people get the opportunity to, to chime in and uh, tell some Richard stories. Well, I hope that you all have enjoyed uh, this listen. Uh, let us know if there's uh, anything uh, upcoming, uh, any memories, anything that you want us uh, to know, if you want to share with us. Um, we really do appreciate you listening in. Share this with anybody you think who would enjoy it. And if you would like to help uh, support us going forward, we're at Patreon, and you can uh, support us that way. Richard had so many relationships out there, so many close relationships. So, you know, our our point today was to talk about our memories. Uh, We didn't intentionally want to leave anyone out. Uh, There are lots of important people uh, in his life and that he was important to. And you have your memories. And so uh, we had ours and we shared them today. So thanks for um, to to listen to what we remembered today about Richard. Thank you.